Hello, I'm Dr Kat Arney. This podcast is part of a mini-series of interviews with speakers from the 2022 Annual Conference of the Adelphi Genetics Forum, a learned society that aims to promote research and discussion concerning the scientific understanding of human heredity. Formerly known as the Galton Institute, and before that, the Eugenics Education Society, the society has changed its name to the Adelphi Genetics Forum to firmly reject and distance itself from the discredited and damaging ideas of its namesake, Francis Galton, widely viewed as the founder of eugenics. This year's conference, titled Living with the Eugenic Past, brought together expert speakers to grapple with the problem of how best to tackle the subject of eugenics. What are the demands of justice when it comes to the victims of eugenics? How should universities and other institutions involved in eugenics deal responsibly with that involvement? And can present-day biology education and research be improved to help safeguard the future from the mistakes of the past? Dr Adam Rutherford is a writer and broadcaster and is an honorary senior research associate at University College London, where he first trained as a geneticist in what was then known as the Galton Laboratory. He's the author of the recent book Control, which explores the dark past and troubling present of eugenics, and gave this year's Adelphi lecture on eugenics and the misuse of Mendel. To begin our conversation, I asked him where Galton's ideas originally came from. Francis Galton was Darwin's half-cousin, so a sort of distant cousin, but they were known to each other. Galton was very enamoured with the work of his cousin, of Darwin's work on the origin of species. And Galton, with a very different temperament to Darwin, had travelled all over Africa and other parts of the world, and he'd developed or his views on racial superiority really solidified on those travels. And when he came back to the UK and following the publication of The Origin of Species, Galton's view was that if humans are mutable, if we are evolved beings, and if through domestication and farming and agriculture we can mould, we can change species to our own ends, then why can't we do the same for humans? And this is an idea that he doesn't come up with. This is an idea that is as old as culture and society itself. Plato talks about it in, in Republic. And, and it seems to be an idea that people have talked about in all cultures over the last several thousand years. But in the years following Thomas Malthus's ideas about population growth, Galton applies statistical techniques within this new framework of evolution that Darwin has set up. And with that, starting in a roughly late, late 1860s, begins what becomes a lifelong commitment to this idea of the scientification of population control, which he gave the name eugenics to. So then that becomes the enduring passion of his life, not just creating a sort of, I would argue, a pseudo-scientific framework for it, but also spreading the ideas through culture. He talked about it towards the end of his life as being a jihad, a holy war that we should change population structures using his eugenics ideas, but it should be pursued with a religious fervour. Obviously, we see the worst impulses of eugenics thinking in things like the Holocaust and other things that have happened over the world over the past century or more. How do we get from Galton and his ideas in a London university 
to the kinds of thinking that drove the Holocaust, the kinds of thinking that have driven some of the, the horrors that we've seen in other parts of the world? Well, that really is the key question. It's the key question that I think about all the time. It's the sort of central, central nub of all of my work. As you say, a, a, an esoteric scientific idea written by a very popular but now relatively obscure Victorian gentleman scientist who in the 1860s and 70s and 80s is writing about this in pamphlets and in the Royal Society where we are now. And, and over the course of the next 40, 50 years, it becomes a worldwide global phenomenon and a central artery for some of the worst crimes of, of humanity in modern history. How it happened? Well, Colton's charismatic, he's popular, he's, he's introducing an idea into a, a, a culture that is, is changing and tumultuous in late Victorian Britain. Industrialization means expanding cities, which means urbanization, which means a more visible poor. You've also got the transfer of the responsibility of for, for the lowest members of society, the poorest and at the bottom end of the socioeconomic scale, the transfer from the church with the Tudor poor laws to the state with various acts in the 19th century, the rise of institutionalization. So lunatic asylums, as they were then called there, is a thing that's on the increase in the, in the second half of the 19th century. Britain is at its peak of colonial power. The whole idea that the sun never sets on the British Empire is really at its zenith in the 1860s, 70s and 80s. And so you've got mass migration from the colonies into Britain. You've also got various wars happening on those fronts. In the 1890s, the Brits get their asses handed to them in the Boer War. And what comes back, what a lot of the Goltonites and the eugenicists fret about is, well, we've just had our asses kicked by an inferior race of people. So what are we doing wrong and how can we improve the stock of the British people in order that this won't happen again? So it's a time of you know, great social upheaval and social change and it is the emergence of a scientific, a pseudo-scientific idea in the wake of Darwin's evolution by natural selection which takes hold. It's a scientification of an older idea. How does that idea get from the, the British Empire to then Nazi Germany? What's the sort of the, the root of transmission the, of infection? Infection is a good way of thinking about it, I think, because although the term eugenics is founded in Britain, and a lot of this discussion is happening in places like the Royal Society and in the Athenaeum and the sort of chattering classes of powerful men in Victorian Britain, the same conversations are happening in America, in Nazi Germany, in other countries around the world, because these are global phenomena, mass migration, industrialization, and, and so on. I think one of the interesting things is you see the same but different scenarios in different parts of the world. So, you know, Galton is central to this again. The key protagonist in the American eugenics movement is called Charles Davenport, and he meets Galton. He's a biologist. He meets Galton in the 1890s and goes back to America with a sort of uh, newfound enthusiasm for the eugenics project. In America, the situation is slightly different. You've got massive immigration happening in the absolute millions. The population of America goes up by tens of millions over the space of you know, 10, 20, 30 years at this time. And so that becomes a sort of central core 
of the eugenics thinking in, in America, along with the heavily sort of racialized society. We, you know, we're only a few years after the Emancipation Proclamation. The idea is funded heavily by the sort of Gilded Age philanthropists, people like Carnegie and Rockefeller. And Charles Davenport is the sort of Galton character who's been influenced, inspired by Galton and taken those ideas to, to America. What's very interesting in the pathway that I'm interested in tracking is that we most readily associate the atrocity of, of eugenics with the Holocaust and the Nazi era. But the influence of the Americans on Nazi eugenics programs cannot be understated. It was a legal framework was, was provided by Charles Davenport and his juniors, a man called Harry Lachlan. A financial endowment from the Rockefeller Foundation actually paid for the eugenics labs in, in Berlin up until 1938. Intellectually, so Davenport and Lachlan and others who are American eugenicists are over in Berlin. So it's scientific, legal, intellectual and financial are the development of uh, or, or the support framework for the development of Nazi eugenics or Rassen hygiene is what they called it. And in the Nuremberg trials after the war, the doctor's trial, which is the second phase, they cite the Americans as inspiration. And that's the, that was the big, big surprise when I talk about this, that that's the moment where people go, this really, you know, this was so central to the American eugenics movement and they transferred it in some cases, word for word, translated into German, and that becomes the, the sort of central artery in the Holocaust. We're talking today about grappling with a eugenic past. Is the era of eugenics really gone? The way we frame this is that eugenics now is regarded almost universally as a sort of toxic idea. And that developed in the years after the, the revelations about what had happened in the concentration camps in the Holocaust in, in Germany. And so we moved away from the concepts of mass sterilization and eugenics becomes a toxic word. But the legacy it continues to this day. For a certain political mindset, it's an attractive ideology that we should shape society and we should do it because we are biological entities. We see this in Trump's behavior repeatedly over the last few years. He talks about the racehorse theory or good genes. Um, he talks about that all the time. I've got good genes. If you want the best racehorse, you get two fast racehorses, you breed them together. You know, this is straight up eugenics thinking. It's straight out of the 19th century eugenics playbook. There's another aspect to the legacy, which I think we have to consider really carefully, which is that the science of genetics and also psychology and statistics emerges out of the eugenics movement. The basis of the science that me and you, Kat, have spent the last however many decades committed to came from a political ideology. And after the war, when eugenics becomes this toxic idea, the eugenics labs around the world, including where, you know, the Galton, where I am still at effectively, even though it's not called that now, they turn into human genetics labs because eugenics was originally the study of heredity, but with this political valence to it. Now, and in the late 20th century, they're just labs studying human genetics and heredity and so on. But what emerges from that is reproductive health interventions, understanding of human genetics, the stuff that we've been learning and teaching and talking about for absolutely years. And those, I think, are good things. But their roots are unequivocally in this idea that we find pernicious, which is eugenics. Is there an argument to say that any study of human genetics 
is inherently tied to eugenics? Is there a way that we can break free from this? I don't think there is necessarily. I also don't think we should necessarily want to break free. My work is in the space of thinking about the history of our field such that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. So this idea that new science gets co-opted or marshaled into political ideologies is something that happens over and over and over again through history. It happens in the, the birth of biology with the invention of race in the 18th century, people like Linnaeus. It happens with genetics, with Galton and Pearson and Fisher and all those old white dudes. We can't operate. There isn't an aspect of statistics, psychology, genetics, all biology effectively that doesn't rely on the work of Fisher and Pearson and to a lesser extent, Francis Galton. But we, don't, we didn't become biologists to understand our history, did we? We, we got into genetics because we're nerds. Right, and we like DNA. But I think that's not good enough anymore, and I think that we have to know our own history. So I don't want to break away from the past. What I want is to integrate our understanding of our history into our current thinking, so that we don't say the same things that we were saying 100 years ago. Here's a bit of a counterfactual. Would we have had eugenics? Would we have had the horrors of the Holocaust if Francis Galton hadn't existed, would these ideas have still spread and grown even without him? I'm setting that as an essay question to my undergraduates on the master's course, because I think it's a great way of framing this. Bigotry is eternal, right? And people use science to prop up their existing bigotries. If Galton hadn't existed, I think that the same ideas would have emerged anyway. I think in science we're very bad at moving away from what academic historians did, moved away from 20 years, 30 years ago, which was the sort of great man theory of, of history. I think the history of science, and scientists in particular, haven't got away from that, and we still go. You know, or we can, you can track a line from Aristotle to, I don't know, Svante Parbo, who, who won the Nobel Prize this, this week as we're recording it, without meeting a single woman on that journey. And Galton fits into that framework because he goes from who comes before him, people like Darwin, to people who come after him, people like Pearson and Fisher and Haldane, and the legends who set up our, our field. Would the same thing happen if Galton hadn't existed? I suspect it would have done. History tells us that people will always look to science to reinforce their pre-existing political ideologies, whether they understand the science or not. So. It would have been a different history, maybe not exactly the same as the one that panned out, but I suspect that the same idea would have emerged. Where I've ended up as an academic and as a writer, also as a popularizer, is trying to understand how new science gets co-opted into existing political ideologies. And I'm not a historian. I've become a historian by default. I approach this from the point of view as a scientist, because we learn from the age of, I don't know, 16 or 18 or whatever you're doing your science, about species concepts and about human evolution and about genetics and DNA and Mendel. And all of those things are the fundamental frameworks of how we do the science that we do today. But, and this is the bit that we don't learn, all of those things emerged in service of existing political ideologies, not in parallel with, but in order to serve, in the first example, racism and colonial expansion, and for genetics and statistics and psychology in order to serve population control via eugenics. And I think that scientists have to recognize that. 
We come with a pernicious history, but the trajectory of that history is worth celebrating. Thanks to Adam Rutherford. And his book, Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics, is out now. You can find out more about the Adelphi Genetics Forum, including their grants, awards and publications, at adelphigenetics.org. You can check out the rest of this series on the Genetics Unzipped podcast feed. Just search for Genetics Unzipped on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This series was produced by the team at First Create the Media. That's Kat Arney, Sally LePage and Emma Werner, with help from Ed Prosser and Frankie Pike. Our music is Drops of H2O by Jay Lang, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening and goodbye.